Making the right decision can be the toughest part of leadership. Obsessing about it can freeze you from making any decision at all. Beverly McLaughlin knows this firsthand, making tons of tough decisions as Canada's first female Chief Justice. She shares her wisdom in this episode. The Innovative Leadership Institute can help too. From developmental stages to mindsets, we can help your leadership team grow and tackle tough decisions with a greater perspective. Learn more at InnovativeLeadership.com. This is Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, where we help leaders be future ready. We're recording this interview from the 2023 International Leadership Association Global Conference in Vancouver, and it's the 25th anniversary conference. Today, we talk to the Right Honorable Beverly McLaughlin, Distinguished Leadership Award winner, who served as the Chief Justice of Canada. So Beverly, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Lovely to be here. Let's talk about how you got to this role. Oh, well, it was very unusual and for me, unforeseen kind of trajectory because I grew up in a rural community, southwestern Alberta, far from, you know, any big centers. And one, I never dreamed of being a lawyer, much less a judge and all the rest of the things that I've been able to do with my legal career was just one step at a time. I never had any idea I could be a lawyer or be a judge as I was growing up. But I was always curious. And when I finished high school, I really wanted to know more about the world. That was what guided my undergraduate studies at university. And I did languages and history and mainly philosophy. Then after that, I wasn't sure what to do. I was thinking about doing graduate work so that I would be a teacher at university. That was the idea in philosophy. But as I was thinking about it, and this is where I suppose your gut feelings come in, there was something that just wasn't 100% enthusing me. So I started wandering about possible other paths. My fiance, we were later married, he said to me, he said, I think you'd be a good lawyer. Now that had never occurred to me, and I don't know why it occurred to him, because he was a scientist and he didn't know very many lawyers. But he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. So there's another pickup there, somebody who knows you better than you know yourself, who can help you often, and you have to have the wisdom to listen to them too. Anyway, I wasn't sure, and I went back to our little town, which is in a ranching community, and I sent a letter to the dean of law at the University of Alberta, Edmonton, where I had been going, and I said, could you send me some information about law school? And I expected I'd get a big sheaf of this and that, and here's an, if you want to apply. And instead, the dean wrote back by return mail and said, you are admitted. So there's another leadership thing. There was somebody who cut through all the red tape. I think they wanted to have more women. Probably he had a chance to look at my record. Instead of saying, here's an application form, apply if you want, he just said, you're admitted. And throughout my life, I've had the benefit of people like that who would proactively suggest something or do something that would send my career on a different path. 
So anyway, when the time came, I went up. I thought, well, there's no harm in trying a scene whether I like this. And during the first week, I decided I loved the law and I really wanted to do more in the law. And I wanted to study this. So the rest of my life has been associated with the law. For me, the law was really, really interesting. I'd been doing a lot of academic work in philosophy, very abstract, etc., The law did two things. It combined analysis, analytic work, because you have to work your way through arguments and use that analytic skill that I had been learning in philosophy. And the other thing it does is that it actually connects you with real life and real people. I realized this was really where I wanted to be. I didn't know where I'd go at that point. So I did my law school, and I did quite well. Then I applied for articles. It was very difficult that time. The first firm I articled with, the interviewer at the end of what I thought was a great interview, he said, why do you want to practice law? And I I was totally flummoxed, blown away. I didn't know what to say. I'd spent seven years getting there, and now he wanted to know why I wanted to practice law. And then he said, well, you know, you're married, aren't you? And I had married the summer before. And in those days... That was 1968. The tradition in Western Canada, and I'm sure in many, many other centers, was that if you were married, you did not follow a profession. It was very unusual. If you married, even if you were 45 or 50 and never had children, your place was looking after the husband you had married. I hadn't really encountered that attitude before. Anyway, I walked across the hall and I got a job with with another firm, and they treated me very well, and I learned a lot. Gradually, I worked my way through various steps of the profession, and then I taught for a while, and then I finally was asked to be a judge. And you went from judge to Supreme Court. What was that journey like? Well, I sat on a lot of different courts. I was only 37 when I was appointed to the county court, and within a few months, this was a time when there were only men on the courts, practically a few women, but hardly any. And and the government of Canada had decided that they wanted to get more women. So I think that was part of why I got accelerated so rapidly. At least the opportunities were there. And so I went rapidly to the Supreme Court, which is a trial court. And that was wonderful. I spent four years there doing all sorts of trial work and jury work and so on. And then I was in the Court of Appeal for no, three years or so. And then in 1988, I was asked to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court again. I only was eight months in that role when I was asked to go on the Supreme Court of Canada. So I started my judicial career in 81, and by 89, I was on the Supreme Court of Canada. That seems like a very rapid acceleration. It is, actually. When I was sworn in as a justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, the treasurer of the Law Society of British Columbia, who spoke at the ceremony, said that I had made it through the court system faster than most cases. (laughs) As we prepared for our conversation, we talked about skills that you used as an attorney and as a justice that are heavily indexed on what leaders do on a daily basis. I never thought of myself as a judge. I never thought of myself as being a leader. And yet, in many ways, I came to realize that I was. Leadership is a complex thing, and there's no one way to be a leader. And you work through with the tools that you've been given, in my case, a legal education, and your experience and the opportunities and situations you find yourself in. And the result is leadership. It may be quiet leadership, Judges don't get out there and give rah-rah speeches. Like political people, it's not that kind of leadership. What is it? Well, 
I think it's the leadership of ideas and decision-making. When you are a judge, you are presented with some very difficult problems to solve. Many cases are more or less routine, but even there you have to figure out what happened, who's telling the truth, who might not be, how the law applies to the facts as you find them. But as you move up the appellate ladder, and certainly at the Supreme Court of Canada or the Supreme Court of the United States, for example, you are going to get some really, really tough issues very critical and difficult social issues on which society can be divided. Issues like, for example, the right to assistance in dying, which was one of the issues we dealt with, and many, many others. Indigenous rights. When I was on the court, the court had to shape a new law, new legal concepts. Now that's leadership by ideas, and it's leadership by listening. You don't come in with an idea and say, this is how it's going to be. Or if you do, you have to set it aside. The duty of the judge is to listen to each side very carefully and then think about each side. I used to say that my job as a judge was by an act of imagination to try to put myself in the shoes of each of the parties almost in the sense that an actor doing a, a movie or a play would try to get inside the skin of a role. Even if the party is not very savory, you know, it's clear they've done something very bad. You're sentencing that person, for example. You've got to at least think about what you're doing from that person's perspective. When I realized that, that helped me a lot as a judge. It's really, really about listening to all the different positions and considering them very deeply, then doing what you think is right on the precedents and the law. But on these difficult cases, it's often possible to go one way or another. There's no one single right answer. So your leadership is a leadership of ideas. Courage comes into it too, because you have to have the courage to sometimes take unpopular decisions. Decisions that you know might not be regarded by everyone or even the majority of people as the obvious choice. And that showed up, for example, in a number of the cases that the court had to deal with on same-sex rights, benefits, marriage, that kind of thing. In the beginning, when this was not as accepted as it is now, there were a lot of people who were very, very upset and very angry with the courts for saying, no, these people deserve to have equal treatment. It's under our constitution, and we have to do that for them. So you have to have the courage of your convictions and the courage of the law, too. People are entitled to the benefit of the law. The judge is just the instrument to give them what they're entitled to. It's not a popularity contest. The judge might have to do some unpopular things. Hopefully, and it's been my experience, that as time passes, if you've really made a sound decision, that is grounded in the law and in the Constitution and in the rightness of what you've decided, the justice of what you've decided, people come around. And in that sense, the courts can sometimes lead the legislators. So there's often a debate. Well, judges should stand back and let the legislators, Congress or Parliament in our country make all the tough decisions. But as a Quite the way it works when you have three different governance institutions in our democracies. You have legislative, you have executive, and you have judicial. And they work together very well. 
And sometimes when the legislators just turn down positions, we're not going to give any gay rights, we're not going to do this, that, because they're very concerned with popularity. The courts can take a longer view and they can do the right thing based on the law and constitution. And that way, the law can progress to meet new social situations. And legislatures then often will take that up and refine it. And it becomes a symbiotic process. But judges have to have the courage to sometimes take the lead on certain issues if that is where the law is leading them. I assume that your individual principles and values, in addition to the Constitution, helped shape your decisions. Is that true? Or can it all come from the Constitution? I think it does. But how uh, it, it's true that each judge brings their experience and their personality to the job they do. But judges learn to, at least in Canada for sure, they learn that they have to set aside their personal religious views or their personal predilections. And I've seen judges do this many times and say, where is the law leading me? Sure, there's room for interpretation, and sometimes a conservative judge may take a more conservative interpretation of the law, but it's always within that legal framework. And judges know that they aren't put on the bench just because somebody liked their views. They're put on the bench because they do this function that we've just been talking about, listening to both sides, studying the law, coming up with the best solution. That's why you're made a judge. So a judge who says, well, I don't like that position before he's read or she has read all the material and listened to everybody and set aside their own biases. A judge has to know their own biases and you have to be very honest about that. A judge who doesn't do that is not really doing a good job as a judge, in my respectful opinion. When I would say the same is true of leadership that in an organizational leadership role, one also should understand their biases and how those biases are informing and crucial decisions. Absolutely. It is even more vital, I would say, in judging, because as I say, the people who come before you are entitled to a fair application of the law. And if a judge's bias gets in the way of that, that's really a serious problem for justice. Is there a case that you oversaw, judged on, that you are most proud of your decision? <laughs> I've often asked that. And, you know, I had such a long legal career that it's hard to single out one. But there certainly are areas where I think I'm proud of the work that the court did and proud of my contribution, which was always along with other people. We were talking about equality rights. I think that we did a lot on the court in my time to flesh out equality rights on issues of gender discrimination, same-sex rights, on issue of racial discrimination, on issue of how you approach discrimination against various minorities and other people. And I took great satisfaction in that because I think it's really important to justice and to the survival of our democracies that we do not allow discrimination to go unchecked. We have to strive for equality. It's just so important. So I'm proud of those decisions. I'm proud of decisions like the Carter decision, which our court made probably before almost any other court, which considered the issue on the right to assistance in dying. Of course, with great caution and with great sensitivity to 
the fact that it's important not to allow abuses of that to come in and to thrive. But in a situation where the desire is verified and medically ascertained and supported and it falls within certain parameters, then I believe, and our court said, it is a person's right to choose when and how they end their life. For example, if they're facing imminent death, they're in great suffering, whatever. And, you know, so many people have come up to me and said to me in the years that have followed that decision that their father or their mother or loved one had chosen to avail themselves of that and that it was such a blessing. They're very, very grateful for that. So I think judges can make a difference. Again, that was a difficult issue, but we led the way in the courts it's something I'm proud of. I'm also proud of the work our court did on Indigenous rights, because when I became a judge in 1981, there was just the beginning of legal recognition of Indigenous rights. Now it has blossomed. Those rights are respected, and we've really set up a framework for determining what those rights are and how they play out in a number of different situations, like land claims, like resource development, and so on. So I'm very proud of that work as well, because I think this was essential to our society. We now in Canada are embarked in process of reconciliation between Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples, and an attempt to somehow right or at least rectify some of the past discrimination and wrongs. And I think that's something we have to be going through. But lawyers and judges the Supreme Court played a large role in setting out the decisions and proclaiming the rights and shaping the legal landscape so that this reconciliation can move forward now. Let's use that as an example, because I imagine things that come to the Supreme Court do because the law isn't clear enough for me to say there's a right answer. It could fall either way. How do you go about making a decision that, as you've said, takes courage, is nuanced, will have implications that ripple through decades, yeah. if not generations? Well, as I said, you study the pros and cons of it and the various submissions that you get very carefully, and you give it a lot of thought. You also give it a lot of discussion. Final appellate courts usually have nine or seven people on them, and that's so that you get different perspectives coming at it. When I was Chief Justice, I very much encouraged the judges discussing these things. We would conference and reconference and reconference. It wasn't just let's get to the answer and move this judgment out, it was let's get to the right answer. And that would often involve a lot of discussion. We also tried to foster an atmosphere where people could change their views. It was all right if at the first court conference you said, I'm just not sure. I want to think about this some more. We never expected people to have absolutely finalized their views. Often their views would be tentative, and I liked that. I thought it left things open so that they would be amenable to other arguments and other viewpoints. So this is a process and it's a, it's a good process. And in that process, you also not only look at how this would impact on parties before the courts, if you read the law in one way versus reading it another way, but you have to bear in mind that it's not just those parties who are going to be affected. It can be many individuals in society 
sometimes if it's a big constitutional issue, almost the whole of society can be affected in some way. So you have to be aware of the kind of ramifications. You have to consider the effects of your decision, not just whether abstractly it looks like it'll be a good decision, it'll write well, but what's the impact going to be down the road? And then that's where you get into the nuance and the clarification. And, and the laws, we understand it in Canada and the United States and England and so on, is incremental. Judges decide one thing, and then they can add to it in a second decision a year or two later. We don't have to decide everything all at once. And sometimes when we're in those situations where we're wondering how it's going to play out, you take a fairly narrow decision and you say, well, we're going to go this far now and we're not going to go and leap too far into unknown waters. And then the issue will come back in another way and another court will take it a little bit further. And in that way, the law develops in a way that makes sense practically and pragmatically. In that example, we can manage the implications a little bit. Yeah. And Indigenous rights seems like one that has far-reaching implications and in some ways touches everyone in society Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Exactly. And so did many of the issues that arose under our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, because the implications of saying this is the law for this situation are often very wide, and the legislature would have to respond by amending a lot of laws. We had to, in the Supreme Court, sort of defer the implementation of our decision. For example, there was a case, I wasn't on the court at this time, but just before I came, there was a case involving language rights. Now, Canada's a bilingual country. Not all the provinces have to have all their laws in both languages, but there was an issue about Manitoba, and Manitoba had been having all its laws written in English, but not in French. So the issue came before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that all the laws of Manitoba had to be in both French and English. Well, it's going to take some time to translate all the laws of Manitoba. So the courts declared that this was necessary, and then they gave Manitoba three years to implement it. So those are very practical things that judges have to do to make sure that their decisions don't result in chaos. You talked about courage. I want to go back to that because I imagine there are times you can take a decision that people are very angry about. And I think of some of the recent ones in the U.S. because of the polarization that no matter who you are or what you decide, there's going to be a faction that's very angry. Yeah. How do you navigate that as a person? Well, I never thought of myself as courageous, but on the other hand, I thought it was my duty to make the decision that I felt the law and the circumstances called for. I didn't have that much difficulty. I mean, I do remember waking up once or twice to headlines, which were just castigating me and what I had written. And it's not pleasant. And, you know, members of your family say, did you have to say that? And this and that. And, but, you know, I always understood that this was part of the judicial role. Judges are granted independence for this very purpose. They can't be hired or fired short of very serious misconduct. And that is because it's been known for centuries that judges will make 
and have to make, if they're doing their job properly, decisions that displease people, sometimes displease people with a lot of power. So we have this absolutely essential principle, essential to the rule of law, that judges are independent and cannot be easily removed. And that's a comfort, and everybody understands that. So you say, well, I've done the right thing. I think I've done the right thing by my judgment, and uh, I have independence just so I can weather this sort of... Was there ever a time that you took a decision and looked back and said, I, I know more now than I did then? And not that it was a wrong decision at the time, but life evolves and we look back and see things differently. Yeah, judges do. The law evolves in situations. In, in 1993, the Supreme Court of Canada, five to four, voted against assisted dying in 2016. Unanimously, the court issued a judgment saying that this should be the right. There were different judges, of course, but judicial views change and the law can change and evolve. But personally, my philosophy was I tried to do the best I could do in each case on the submissions before me and in that time and context and then move on. Because if the goal you set for yourself is to be absolutely perfect in every case and get to the perfect result, you'll drive yourself crazy. You will not be a good judge. And this goes to leadership too. You have to understand that you do the best you can at a time that you have to make that decision, and then you move on. And maybe a couple of years later, you'll see things in a different light. You can look back and say, I did the best I could at that time. And no human being can do better than that. I have seen judges who were so consumed by this platonic ideal of perfection that they became very unproductive. They couldn't write anything. They certainly couldn't write it quickly in the time people expected that decision to be taken. So, you know, leadership is about doing the right thing, but it's doing it under pressure. Judges don't have as much pressure as many other decision makers, but at the same time, people want answers and they expect them within a few months. If you're a good court and a good judge, you do that because justice delayed is often justice denied. What prepared you to be good? Because as you've said, many people are good scholars or good litigators or good thinkers, but they don't end up necessarily being good judges. Well, I think the quality that really you have to have is the one we started off with, which is that you have to have this ability to look at different aspects and different perspectives and different arguments and weigh them up. And somehow, most of the time, we hope, come to the right decision. So you have to have all those other qualities, I think you're saying. You have to have intellectual ability. You have to know how to read the law and analyze it. You need a deep grounding in the methods of the law. But you also just have to have this quality, and you can cultivate it. You don't have to be born with it. But some people are born with more of it than others. Some people rush to a conclusion just instinctively. They see a problem. Let's solve it now. They move on too quickly. A judge can't do that. The other thing I think I hear is empathy, both empathy for the people whom you are judging and empathy as you interact with other justices. I agree. I think that's a hugely important quality. You can't do anything by yourself. A judge needs empathy and understanding of the situation of other people, the people who are litigating and the people who will be affected by the decisions. 
I agree that the judge needs empathy to be able to work with other people and listen to those perspectives and humility. I don't know it all. Maybe this person has a better insight or an insight I haven't thought about. So humility is really important. Empathy and humility, I think, and openness. Thank you so much, Beverly. We're already at the end of our time, and I know you're moving on. How would our listeners learn more about your work, learn more about you and your upcoming book? If they're interested in my work, they should look at my memoir, which is Truth Be Told. It's quite readable. It's not an autobiography. It doesn't take you through every month of every year that I've lived or anything like that. But it is my take on my life in the law. That's probably a good start. And read some of the decisions. (laughs) Maybe you agree. Maybe you don't. Thanks very much. This was nice. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Thank you to the ILA for sponsoring this conversation. And for our listeners, I challenge you with the question of, are you demonstrating curiosity, openness, humility, empathy, and right speed at coming to just decisions? Mm -hmm.